with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 25 through, <clears throat> through verse 30, 30 uh, 24, pardon me, verse Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. Forgive me, I was looking at one place in the text and I had written right in front of me what my text was for today, and I knew what my text was for today, but... At any rate, um, I'm looking at the bulletin, too. I apologize for the lesser bulletin that we have, um, but, uh, but, but at least we have something. We're grateful to God for his provision. Um, <clears throat> we will not be celebrating the Lord's Supper today because of a reduction in the size of our congregation. Some are ill and away this week, and we thought it right uh, in, in light of sickness and not wanting to spread and share uh, various things. We're We'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper this next week. So let's come prepared this next week to receive this wonderful means of grace. This is Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. Still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray for understanding, for grace. We pray, oh God, that you would grant us to know and to come to a conviction over your word. We pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would grant us to see. We ask this by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Jesus has been invited to a dinner party, and we understand that in the immediate context. And there he is. He's partaking. He's eating. And in Luke's observation in verse 1, they are watching him very closely, very carefully. They are very concerned about what he'll say. And in fact, they have determined in their heart to bring to make certain that they would bring him that they would bring him down. They would put him to death at some point. And so they're scheming. They're thinking. They're watching. All of us, I think, are in some ways people watchers. I I do it. I'll stand there with Christine while she's going through the clothing racks, and I'll stand against another clothing rack and 
and just watch people and examine and think about what they're doing there and what that man's thinking about his wife as she looks at the clothing and we all people watch. We go to dinner parties and we, we sit there and we look at people around the table and what are they talking about and I wonder where they work and, and what relationships do they have to the person sitting next to them and how do they know the host or hostess? We all people watch. Well, that's what they're doing with Jesus. And frankly, Jesus is doing that with them. He's well aware. He knows they're watching him carefully. He's there at the party. He's studying a situation. He's thinking about the thoughts and activities of other persons as his eyes are sweeping the room. He has some thoughts about what he observes. He's already just in a gentle way, rebuked the host. And he has said in verses 12, 13, and 14, look, as you search for the places of honor, as he sees all the various individuals, as they each make an assessment of each other and of themselves and sit in the appropriate places of honor around the table, closest to the host, closest to the most controversial speakers, he observes this, Jesus does, and he has just said, in verses 12 through 14, don't invite people who will pay you back. Rather pay, rather invite the persons who are less inclined to be able to repay you. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. They will be grateful. And don't, don't invite persons to your table in order to be repaid. And he said to those who are jockeying over themselves trying to get places of honor, Sit in a place beneath your station so that the host will come and say, come, let me lift you up to an appropriate place rather than get into a place of a a position of honor and have the host come and say, well, will you please move? Because another person greater more recognized than yourself has come. In light of all of that, as Jesus observes these things, he has some things to say. He has further observations about their conduct. They've chosen places of honor and the host has chosen those people who can repay him. And Jesus has spoken. Well, in light of that conversation, perhaps it made someone uncomfortable. Perhaps someone said, you know, those are harsh words. And to tell all the people that they should choose places lower than their station and to tell the host, he should rather invite rather than invite the rich and the influential. He should he should invite the uninfluential, the lame, the poor and the blind. Let me say something to break the tension. And so he does that. As he lifts up his, his wine glass and most likely in a common toast of that time, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Truly, that will change the subject, lighten the mood, break the tension, help things just a bit. Jesus replies to this. He replies to it. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. He has a story. He has a story to illustrate what he has to say and what he has just said in verses 12 through 14. A great banquet. Let's examine the story that Jesus unfolds. There are two stages to any great banquet in that time. For you and for me, what we would do because we have modern refrigeration, because we have modern grocery stores, because we can 
make uh, plans long distances away. And we could even, if we held it in the banquet hall, we could make plans with the banquet hall to hold it on such and such a day, and we would hold them to be prepared for that day, wouldn't we? That they themselves would put in the food orders and hold that food in advance in preparation for that party, that they would hire the requisite number of people who could help to serve and to make the place decorated. We make plans based upon our abilities. Well, in that time, they didn't have large retinues of servants who could be hired, and they had people in their own house that they would have to plan with. And the food that would be prepared was literally, explicitly farm to table. So if you're, if you're, if you're having a party, you would send out the invites and say, I'm having a party. This is the occasion. Will you come? It's going to be on such and such a date and time. Perhaps even might, we might send that out in the morning. And you would say, yes, I'll come. I'll commit to coming. Count on me. Put two tables and uh, put two chairs at the table in my name and I'll be there. Make certain that the food and the drink, enough for two more people, is present, and I'll be there. And so the farmer, the, the, the host, the hostess, would then go and kill the cattle, kill the sheep, the lamb. They would cut away the skin. They would process the animal, cut it into its various parts, hang the meat, age the meat, cook the meat. They would gather the vegetables, they would gather the grain, crush the grain, make the bread, and prepare it. All would be prepared. They would ferment the wine, have the wine, pull it aside, and make sure that it is prepared precisely on time. And they would make sure that they had all that was needed. That's what you do in that day and age. So you would send out multiple invitations. First, there's the initial invitation. Will you come? Will you commit to come? Can I count on you that when the day is here, that this is such and such a day, that when the day comes, you'll be here so that as I prepare the food and don't have refrigeration, but as I make certain that I have enough for you, will you promise to come? And if you don't, if you won't, and you're not prepared to come, then just tell me. And so based upon that first invitation, the host or hostess would then prepare. Then when the day came and the time was upon them and the preparations were being made that very day, the lambs, the animals were brought in, the, the, the blood had been bled out, that they were being prepared and put on the spit. The time has come, six o'clock this evening, the feast which you promised to come to and prepare yourself for is on. Well... This great banquet was in two stages very much like that. And the problem was there was a change of heart by the invited and the committed. You see, in, our, in, in present day language, they had RSVP'd. They had sent back the RSVP. I don't even know what RSVP stands for, but they had sent it back and they had said, we're coming. We're committed. When do you send that second invitation? We will respond. When that time comes, no matter what day, no matter what time of day, when you say that on that day you are preparing a great feast, we'll be there. Regardless of whatever things might occur or circumstances in our lives, we'll be there. We're committed. 
They had been invited, but they had a change of heart. Something had happened between the first invitation and the second. When the second invitation came, literally in light of what our text says, they thought lightly of the commitment required of them, the significance of the event and of the host, and they thought more highly of their own business, and they refused to come. This is not like what you and I experience on occasion sometimes. Well, last Sunday, I have a standing invitation and responsibility to be here on the Lord's Day, but I was not able to make it because I was concerned for your welfare and I was unable because I was sick. Not wanting to make anyone else sick, I asked someone else to go in my place. Now, we might do that, but other times we might send a, a cancellation and say, I'm sorry, I had intended to come, my best intentions were to come, Now I can no longer attend because of real circumstances that changed. We're sick. Our children are sick. We've just been in an auto accident. Something significant, something substantial has happened. My my financial situation has changed. I must work. These are legitimate excuses, legitimate reasons people understand. But let's examine the excuses of those who are invited, who decided not to come. Uh, To be frank, they are excuses, excuses. They are nonsensical excuses. They are excuses of economy, of business, of busyness, of relationship complications. Fundamentally, these excuses are lies. And let me explain why. I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Who buys a field unseen? Who buys a field without ever having looked at it? Have you ever bought a home without having looked at it? I read recently of some people who actually do that in the paper. And there was an individual in Colorado who bought a home from someone in California or from someone from California who bought a home in Colorado, wanted to move there, bought it online, went out there, sued the real estate agent, naturally killed him. A number of months ago in this last year, found him, killed him with a gun. He was determined to do so because he felt he had been shysted. But in all actuality, this man had brought suit in the courts and the courts had said, no, you bought exactly what was listed. Everything that was said about the property, you knew it. So he decided to kill the real estate agent. Extraordinary story. Who buys a house without looking at it? I would never do that. Would you ever do that? I don't think any of us would do that. As hardworking folk who are middle income at best, we would never do that. I have bought a field and I must go see it. Well, if you have just bought a field, even if you did and it's sight unseen, it's so insignificant to you and or so unimportant that you do see it that you already bought it. Can it not wait until the next day? I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Really? Really going to a banquet at the house of the host, this wonderful, great banquet. You must go inspect animals that you've just bought sight unseen. Again, inspection always happens prior to sale. That's a fundamental business requirement. And if you buy something sight unseen, The law is not going to uphold your your concerns after the fact because 
You've had an opportunity for examination. You've not taken advantage of it, but you've purchased it now as yours. As long as the facts about the property have been disclosed and you've had ample enough opportunity to inspect, you're on your own. So we don't buy animals sight unseen. We don't do that. We don't buy major purchases. It's like the equivalent of a car or a farm implement, a, a tractor. Would we buy something like that without having ever seen it? No. I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Perhaps we might understand. And there was a, within society a legal requirement that newly married couples would abstain from necessary social engagements as well as warfare, frankly, that the husband should stay home for a year and be with his new wife. I think there's a wonderful principle there, young people, when you get married, don't involve yourself in numerous commitments. Don't, don't obligate yourself to all sorts of things. Fulfill your obligation to your husband, to your wife. Stay together. Don't let anything intrude on that trust. Don't, don't let anything new or outside influence, but rather maintain that you have some time committed to one another alone without all the obligations that people will place upon you. Here's the problem with this excuse. When the initial invitations went out, this young couple said, we'll be there. We'll commit to be at the table. We will partake of your banquet. We will celebrate with you. Hold two seats for us. And now that the time has come, they are using the excuse that is quite general, that was true before the first invitation came. I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. The time of obligation is past. They had previously assented and now they must keep their promise. But they have changed their minds. These are the excuses of the self-absorbed, of the busy, of the preoccupied, of the selfish, of the self-satisfied, of callous people. Think about if you were to have a wonderful banquet and uh, whether it's a celebration of your graduation day and you're celebrating your graduation from college, you're celebrating a graduation from high school, and certain numbers of your friends have said, I'll be there. No matter what, I love you. I celebrate your accomplishments. We'll be there. We can't wait. The day comes and you receive all these texts. Sorry, I won't be able to come. And as you read them, you know these reasons are only excuses. And you wonder why I invited you. You said you came, you would come. You promised that you loved me in this way. You determined that you would be here and you gave me your promise and commitment. Now, whether or not you say I promise, in my view, is not necessarily re required for something to be called a promise. If you and I say that we will do something, that is by nature a promise. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your words mean something. And when you say you're committed to something, do it. Because you fear the Lord and you honor the Lord and you want your words to mean something. And you want when you give your word about something to be received, to be heard, to be believed. 
So much so that when you say something, no one will question and say, I'm not sure if I believe you. I'm not sure if I should take you seriously. I'm not sure if I should believe what you have to say. I'm not sure if you're going to be there. So I'll check back in with you. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If so-and-so says yes, then that's what it means. If so-and-so says no, that's what it means. You can trust this person. These people are indifferent. They're apathetic. They're in this, this, they're inconvenienced by all of this. They're, they're complacent. It's very much like the Revelation chapter 3 verse 15 language. They're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. And they have said of themselves, I am rich. I have prospered. I, I need nothing, not realizing in God's assessment that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Together with ignorance and the fact that they are apathetic, they are complacent, indifferent. They have fundamentally received that secondary invitation and they've said, I really don't care to go. Can you imagine how much that must hurt for someone who has prepared their home for guests? To receive from someone that they really just don't care to come. Really, for mankind, I think these are our greatest sins. There is a truth about us as human beings, and and I think even as believers sometimes, that we can take in the word of God and we can be indifferent about it. We can hear great truths and be apathetic. In other words, to not in any way identify with that passage. Read it in a cold and efficient way and yet really not be convicted by it, nor think deeply upon it. There is often in us ignorance, a willing ignorance, an indifference, an apathy, an inconvenience of the word of God, a complacency about it that we we just simply can't be bothered. And we say of God's gracious invitations in the word of God, I'm just not sure how strongly I feel about taking it up and how strongly I feel about believing and obeying. Jesus has exposed the unbelief in this parable. He's exposed the unbelief of the Pharisees there and the religious people of his day. He would do the same in most modern churches today where the virgin birth, the incarnation, the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead is rejected. Scripture is not held up to be inspired, breathed out by God, inerrant, infallible, holy, where the necessity of the atonement is denied, where salvation is reduced reduced to material blessings, and the Christian life is minimized to the self-interests and self-acceptance and self-love. you question that? Whole denominations are given to these things. Emptied of the word of God, Ichabod over their buildings. Surely the glory of the Lord is departed. The Pharisees' entire religious system. I, I've never been shocked like I was when I was speaking with someone. I thought it was just gracious to be responding to a female pastor, someone in training, someone who had been to seminary, someone someone abundantly trained in the word of God. And even though 
I know God's word exclaims very carefully over and over again that godly biblical ministers are to be males. I know that, believe that. Yet here was a woman who has has felt a call to proclaim the word of God and it was not my role to straighten her out, to undermine her, to, to be her God in a sense and to declare anything to her other than to show the gospel to her and to love her in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And so uh, as, as I didn't affirm necessarily nor say I exhort and I encourage and I uplift you in your calling, I didn't do that either. But just showing common humanity and common grace and kindness, making assumptions about what she believed. She turned to me one day and said, you know, what you speak of regarding Christ, I don't believe. (laughs) And concerning the atonement, that is not my model of salvation. I don't see the necessity of a bloody death, nor the death of a Messiah on a cross. And I don't believe that that is necessarily what I should be preaching. It was at that point I could no longer identify in any sense with him. Other than, as a human being, to proclaim, you know, these are things you need to believe in. And so do I. And so my my approach changed from corporate identity to, to, to a clear understanding this person needs the gospel. But it shocks me every time it happens in my life and every time I hear it and and engage in these ways, but I hear it over and over again of churches that have no use for the atonement of Jesus Christ, who don't believe the testimony of the word of God, who have no interest in believing that, yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, but this is true. And this is the state of oftentimes churches in our land. This willful ignorance is is self-determining fate for these individuals because they refuse to believe and they refuse to take up the invitation of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Come and believe. Come and partake of Jesus Christ in the feast of grace And they say in hoity-toity, sanctimonious manners, I don't believe. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement. Is that not a rejection of the invitation of the king of kings? The Pharisees had done so with Jesus. The entire religious system, the expectation of faith, breathed their hope of God's provision of a Messiah. They were all about an expectation of God's provision of the one who had crushed the head of Satan, the one who would be in the line of David, who would come as a king and deliver them. And when the king came, the king of kings, the God of gods, light of light, they said, we'd rather not say yes to this invitation. They They were the people who had been invited to the great feast. They were the ones who said, I have no interest in being, in sitting at your table. 
Now, it's clear that they had never believed in God's promise. They certainly had their own expectations of what God was obliged to do for them. Nor would they ever come to accept their hosts, who is Jehovah Elohim, the Lord of hosts, invitation to grace. The banquet is before them. God's provision promised from ages past, the perfect fulfillment of every promise, the sumptuous, refreshing, filling, soul-satisfying offer filled with various and wonderful aspects and displays of grace. It's ever before them. Only let them come. But they hated Jesus. And they refused to come. Notice the seriousness of their offense. Rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a great offense to God. A refusal to believe in his word is an offense to God. And he is right in judging them, for he has lovingly sought them. And he has with great protestations, protestations sought their inclusion by calling them to come and to believe. He has winsomely and mercifully preserved them. And he calls them to come and participate in his son and his benefits. And yet they have refused. J.C. Ryle says, open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kills their tens of thousands. Think of all the privileges that we have as church people, as religious persons. Church membership, the blessings of the new covenant, pardon of sin, the favor of God, peace of conscience, the promise of the gospel, all the riches contained in God's gracious promises, access to the throne of grace, Oh, the privilege of prayer. Oh, my God, what a great God he is. And that he invites us to come and commune with him. Oh, the privilege of prayer. God, help us to take up prayer more fervently in this new year. To fill up that back room on Sunday mornings before church. To so overwhelm the servers of Zoom on Sunday nights one month out of them. One one small month out of, or one small week out of the entire month to come for one small hour and to pray. May God give us a spirit of prayer. Oh, we live beneath our privileges, dear friends. Why do we neglect prayer? Oh, how we need the Lord. We're invited to the Lord's Supper. We have the ordinances. Our faith is strengthened. We're lovingly sought out by church leadership when or if we might go astray. We are nourished from the word of God. There is Sunday school instruction for our children. We have a place to worship the Lord. We're not cast out on the street. We have peace with God. We have righteousness in Jesus Christ. We have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We have the love of God the Father. What are we lacking? And yet for some of us who may be watching, who might be listening, we have not come. We have not come to Jesus and said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I believe, I believe I are in need of atonement. I am in need of the forgiveness of sin. I am in need of pardon. I am in need of renewal. I am in need of grace. I believe. 
Other things matter to these people. If other things matter to you more than Jesus Christ, don't let another year go by without asking God, Lord, help me more fervently this year, now, today, to serve you, to delight in you, to stop going on about all my all my political likes and dislikes and to stop arguing about people driving on the road and to stop contending over less and insignificant matters. Help me to take up the cause of Jesus Christ. Help me to live for Jesus in my world. Well, the Lord who has invited is angry in verse 21. And the man understands the nature of those excuses. His anger is because of those excuses. And so he, he provides a dual action. One, go into the streets and the lanes of the city and get everyone. Tell them to come. And two, go out onto the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. It's a very forceful word. Compel them. It's, it's similar. It's a similar word to election and predestination. It's 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 draw them, as Jesus said. None can come to the Father unless uh, none can come to me unless the Father draws them. It's that kind of language. It's the kind of language of the Holy Spirit coming upon dead and insufferable hearts, renewing and and enabling faith. Renewing dead hearts and granting new life and, and enabling faith that now germinates and yields faith and repentance and return unto God and new life is born. Compel, compel them to come in. Why the drive to fill the hall and produce great crowds? Well, why are these impoverished and imperiled and less fortunate people here? Because of the Father's love for the Son of God and his determination to glorify him in the salvation of sinners and the reclamation of the depraved, of the broken, of the hurting, of the tearful, of sinners. We have a window on the purpose of redemption. The reason for the salvation of man, the reason for your salvation and mine is so that the love of God the Father would be displayed in the Son. So that God could glorify the son in your salvation. So that the righteousness of Christ would be seen in you. These people understand these individuals who are called from out in the highways and byways. The the lame, the blind, the deaf, crippled, poor. These are the ones spoken of in chapter 12 verse 14. Verses 12 through 14, we referenced the beginning of the sermon this morning. Those individuals who would be more, far more grateful of an invitation when they are invited. They would never turn down an invitation. They're conscious of their need. These people are not over obligated, nor will they make excuses. They don't have any. I was in the city street and I was invited to come in. I was out in the highways and the hedges. I was compelled to come. I had no excuse. Kind of like what some of us have said 
I had reached a low point in my life. I had nothing left. God brought me to an end of myself such that I could see no other way out except to turn to him. That's the compelling power of God, isn't it? The salvation of sinners. God is the one who pursued you. These are the cast aside, the broken, the needy, the bruised, the anxiety ridden. That's you. That's me. That's us right here. The dependent, the lonely, the poor, the foolish, people without social media followings, without influences or followers, the insignificant, those who've made a wreck of their lives, the sin sick and worse, the unworthy. Some of the lowest castes of society are invited. So even the occasional criminal is included. And they're compelled to come in. Because God loves the son. The father adores the son and, and desires to see him glorified. Because God's love for us and for his creation has determined that he would save many from out of humanity. And cause them to receive grace. Those who did not deserve it. Those who are conscious of their need. They're compelled to come in. They're not given a moment to consider how to make themselves more presentable. There's an invitation, a gospel invitation expressed to all of us. An invitation to the love of God. Come, celebrate the Son of God. Come and believe in the eternal Son. The feast is prepared. There are comparisons here to Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb, where every tasty food and every delectable thing will be laid out and every strong drink that, that is uh, that will not be abused because we cannot sin in heaven, but we will drink with joy and with gladness before God. We will partake once again of the wine that the eternal Son of God said that he would never partake of again until he sees us. Until we are there at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we, the church of Jesus Christ, will be betrothed to him for all eternity. United with our Savior. One in love, one in flesh, one in spirit, one in salvation. Those who are eventually invited into the kingdom are only those who know themselves to be ill in need of God's healing. Or those who have come to be healed by Jesus Christ, the great physician. The gospel is for outcasts, dear friends. It's for outsiders. It's for those who know I've made a shipwreck of my life. I have no hope in this world. I need Jesus Christ. I need help. I need hope. I need I need someone to intercede with me and God because I know that I am estranged from God and I am cut off from God. My sins have created a cutoff between myself and him. And so we come to Jesus. The anger of the king in verse 21 results in the expulsion of verse 24. Those who are first invited are no longer invited. And they will not partake. They will not taste. My dear friend, do you, do you know that you have been invited to the feast of God, of his grace? And have you taken up that invitation? Have you partaken by faith weekly? I know, just like me. Weekly, insufficiently, conscious of our inability, conscious of our 
the, the, the failings of our prayers, of our of our lives, of our determination to live for God that falls flat on its face, it seems, almost every day. Nonetheless, have you done it? Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? Have you said, Lord, I, I, I've made a mess of my life. My life in so many ways is shipwreck. But I have no hope apart from you. I can turn nowhere else for salvation. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Savior. What did the dinner guests do? Well, they went home to their entertainment. They went home. They flipped the television on. They went home and they had their meal. They went about their work. The next morning they got up, had their coffee, and drove off to their jobs. They didn't think anything of the invitation they had been given Their assumptions, their religious system was still intact, their faith commitments, they were content in their unbelief, but the feast of God's salvation and the Messiah was closed to them, and their unbelief had angered God, and others would now sit in their place at the table. Not conscious of it, they had lost the one thing of eternal significance that was extended to them freely. That was the warning given to many of these people. Perhaps there were some who would sit amongst the thousands, stand amongst the thousands, after Peter's magisterial sermon, repenting of their unbelief and believing in Jesus Christ unto salvation. And surely many were, thousands of Jews there that day. Read the first couple of chapters of Acts in order to be enlivened and encouraged about how God saves wicked sinners. Well, the person who is truly a Christian has made a conscious commitment in response to the gracious invitation of the Lord to come and to banquet at his table. We've done this at conversion. We have said, yes, I need Jesus. I am in desperate need of God's forgiveness of my sins. And we do it every subsequent day of the Christian life. I need Christ. I need Jesus. I am desperate uh, in need of his continuing forgiveness. I'm daily relying upon his grace. I can't live in my family. I can't go to work unless, Jesus, you're with me. We come daily to the Lord Jesus out of sheer need, sheer gratitude for the invitation to come and out of desperate longing for an an ongoing and deeper relationship with Christ and out of a continuing sense that Even as I renew my relationship with the Lord, I sin and I sin continually and I destroy and I remove, I, I, I harm myself and I do harm to myself and to my relationship with the Lord daily and continually. And yet the Lord is faithful. And so what can I do except continually day by day say, Lord, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you every hour. I need you every day. Don't forget me. Don't leave me. Father, do not withdraw your Holy Spirit from me. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Christian who is conscious of that need doesn't miscalculate consistently and only come when it's convenient. We recognize that an offer to prayer uh, an offer to come and pray with the dear brothers and sisters on the Lord's Day or on the eve- Sunday evening is in fact an invitation of God in his grace to sit at the banquet and feast. 
And to come on the Lord's day and to gather with God's people, even in a small church, and to rejoice in the Lord and to hear his word and to sing his praises, as small and insignificant as it seems, is an invitation by the eternal God to come and sit at his banquet of grace and partake. To have our souls fed, a spirit encouraged, a mind renewed. So, my dear friend, are you hot after the Lord? Or are you indifferent and cold-hearted? Ask the master to take away for that cold-heartedness, that indifference, and he will. What are the excuses we're using? Tiredness? We're busy? Business? Are we doing too much good for others and so we don't have time to worship the Lord? Or is the issue really one of complacency and apathy? About the things of God and the Lord's Day worship, Sabbath worship is inconvenient, doesn't fit the schedule. This is a parable for everyone this morning who hears these words and is not believed. You can't possibly hope to hear a better invitation. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, come and feed upon the bread of life. Hear the voice of the shepherd who cannot lose a single sheep. Come to the one who will never cast you away. Come to the one who will never leave you, never forsake you. The one who will never bother the door to a repentant sinner. The one who says, come to the way, come to the truth, come to the life, come to the eternal God and his son. Come to Jesus Christ, come to the living water who will satisfy your soul's thirst. The Lord is saying that to you this morning, to you today. Today is the day of your salvation. What are you saying to him in your heart? Oh, if you only knew the kind of person I was, if you only knew what I did last night, if you could only see what a wreck I've made of my life, oh, the Lord sees, and yet he still says, come, come. He knows of it all, and still he commands, come. It's very much like that wonderful hymn, Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, joined with power, he is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come, you needy. Come and welcome God's free bounty glorified. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, come to Jesus. Come and buy. Come, you weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is you for you to feel your need of him. Tis he gives this he gives you. Tis the spirit's rising beam. Lo, the incarnate God ascended pleads the merit of his blood, venture on him, venture wholly, let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Let's pray.